Blog Talk Radio. Actually, we're going to listen to more a little bit in the show. But welcome, everyone, to the 411 Lounge presented tonight by Pleasure Life Music Television Radio. My friend, Spontaneous, who I can't thank enough for this program tonight as we are live from Chicago. It's a cool night here in Chicago. Hopefully it is warm wherever you are at. Uh, Tonight is a special night here. Uh, We are very happy to... uh, Welcome our guest, and uh, we're going to do a little bit more of that here in just a moment. So hold on just a second, and you'll hear the rest of the music. Hey, how are you? Oh, yeah. Wake up in the morning 
folks, I will start from the top, and I'm more than happy, and now that I've got them plugged in, uh, as I said, welcome to the 411 Lounge. My name is LeVar, and of course, uh, the big part of this tonight is, is part of the Pleasure Life Music TV and Radio presentation. My guest at this time, who I am more than excited to have here, uh, of course, you know, everyone always goes to Wikipedia, <laughs> and Wikipedia, of course, lists him as an actor and singer, but of course, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, he's had an over 40-year career in Hollywood, and it's also seen him contribute as a director, writer, producer, composer, there's so many other ones that we'll touch on this hour, but, uh, you know, from groundbreaking roles in movies such as Claudine and Cooley High, to memorable roles in television such as his roles on Welcome Back, Cotter, Roots, and of course, the Jacksons in American Dream, to Gilmore Girls and the Let's Stay Together. New York native, he continues to add to a legendary Hollywood career, and I'm more than happy and honored, quite frankly, that uh, he is here this evening. Welcome to the program, sir. Hey, thank you, sir. I'm happy where we got it together. We almost had an oversight. <laughs> so here we go, man. <laughs> no, I, I'm happy you're here. You know, I, I when we originally had planned this show, I did not think about that this happens on an Oscar Sunday, and, you know, it's... Even more so, I'm glad that you're here because for someone that has been in Hollywood and has seen, you know, roles, especially for African Americans, change in the last 40 years, I want to get your insights on a lot of things here tonight. Uh, but first, I cannot start this show without, uh, of course, because we're live from Chicago. And the one question all week, in the last couple of weeks, everyone has said, you know, if you don't go this entire hour without asking about Cooley High, <laughs> Especially for those who were here. You get asked about that every day. Uh, close. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think what's really funny, you know, about three weeks ago, maybe yeah, three weeks ago, Glenn Turman celebrated his seventieth uh, birthday party. So I went to it, of course, and I was there, and Garrett Morris was there, and Stephen Williams was there, and we all looked at each other and we said. My God, have we known each other a long time, man? I mean, whoa. It's going like 44 years, man, but we're still friends, and we still get excited about the idea of Cooley High and the experience. It's just one of those special gems that you get blessed with, man, when you get lucky. What were your memories of filming it here in Chicago? I'm sorry, say again? What were your memories of Chicago around that time and uh, filming some of the scenes here? Um, that was my very first time going to Chicago. I was 21. I just turned 21 back in 1975 there, 74, it was 74. And, um, you know, Chicago was just exciting to me, and it was new. And I was so immersed in just being a young actor and just doing the job and having no expectations other than to, you know, try to do a good job and keep on moving. But I got around a lot. You know, I hung out with uh, Stone and Robert, whose names are really um, Stone and Norman. And they took me out to a lot of parties in the hood, but it was good. It was all good. And um, I, I just enjoy Chicago. I've been there many, many times since, of course, over the years. And uh, it's just a very exciting, um, vibrant town. And sometimes, like when I go there in the summertime and I'm in downtown, it looks like a clean New York to me, which is where I'm from. <laughs> like they polished it or something. So there you go. <laughs> I think everybody says that when they come here to Chicago. And, you know, like I said, oh, it, yeah. it ranges across so many different, you know, age levels, I've talked to people in the last week, especially a young lady who doesn't know too much about, you know, anything probably more than a decade or two ago, but when I mentioned that I was going to be talking to you this evening, the first thing she's like, Cooley High! And, you know, are you amazed that even now this new generation of people who are able to see this movie and relate to it in different ways? You know, it is amazing. You know, I get really... um you know, taken aback when I, I see very young people who are watching the movie or a lot of the rappers, the rappers, Cooley High is their holy grail, man. They just think it's God's you know, gift. You know, it's just amazing. But when I see the young people get into it and they can enjoy the experience, well, I'll watch it, you know, with my little granddaughter who's seven years old. And, and you know, she, what, what's funny about it is when she watches it, it's most, I'm just popping to her. And when she looks at it, she's like, oh, Poppy, you were so skinny and stuff like that. <laughs> So that's the fun part for me. It's a wonderful gem, you know, and to see that people can relate to the movie. The movie was a, a coming-of-age movie that was about anybody's life. It, it, it was, you know, past any kind of a genre of who you are as a person in terms of ethnicity or anything like that. It was just a coming-of-age movie, and it was fun. 
And um, it was the adventure of these two men, this preacher and this Cochise, who were the great, great friends. And it took a tragedy to springboard the, the reality about how you have to press forward with what is in your heart, but never forget who you are. So, it, you know, it really, that can sing at any time. And we talked about memorable characters that you have portrayed on the screen. And, of course, one of the other ones was, of course, in, uh, what a lot of people would be, uh, my parents talked about, they always played the album from the movie, and that was Claudine. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, what were some of your recollections from that movie? Well, Claudine, I, I tell you this about Claudine. Diane Carroll to this very day still thinks she's my mother. <laughs> so, <laughs> whenever I talk to her or we might get together for lunch or something like that, she starts to give me motherly advice. I crack up sometimes. I said, uh, Diane, I'm 63. But, you know, it doesn't matter to her. And, um, I mean, Claudine, you know, was again, it was an exciting time. I was a 19-year-old kid out in New York City. I went up for an audition that I didn't even have an appointment for. I just heard about it, and I showed up. And they saw what seemed like a million actors to me. But, you know, they saw just people all day long, and then it got down to I was the very last person there that day. And they took me in, and I met the director, John Barry, rest in peace, and Charlie Briggs, the casting director, another rest in peace, good brother. And um, they put me through the drill, and then it got down to myself and five other actors, all who happened to be friends, and it worked out. But the experience um, was relatable to me because I came from a large family. I was living in the um, projects then. I, I could understand the anguish of this young man, his uh, frustration, his feeling tied down to um, being clueless or how do you go forward when the chances seem to be none. It hasn't changed a great deal in, in a lot of the outlook of even how life is today with a lot of young people where you, you go out there and you um, you want opportunities and you try to seek them out. But to be able to bring them to any kind of fruition is real tough uh, in the world today because you can go get your degrees, you can study hard, and you should, and so forth. But the opportunity to be able to apply that and practice it is very um, limiting and slim. So that's that's an encouragement and a discouragement uh, discouragement in one. And so that that's that, that's a tough line, you know, to cross. Well, with the character of Charles and Claudine back in 1973. That was coming right out of the the, um, the last days of the um, Black Panthers and civil rights movement uh, marches were you know in the streets all the time. The Vietnam War was over, but it still had um, a lot of people going over there to find POWs. You know, there's missing in action people, MIAs, <clears throat> and so that was really in the air. And it was also a time when uh, we talked to each other. This is the pre-internet days and the Snapchats and all that. So you had to get your information from the radio or the um, three or four news programs that came on daily. So, you know, that, that was the target for me. So I, I can relate to that strongly because I was immersed in that. I used to be in peace marches when I was a kid and, and protesting at the UN and all that stuff. So um, it was a you know, very relatable eye-opener and a realistic um, rendering for me just to go through with. You know, you talked about your experiences then, and, you know, now with everything that seems to have happened within the last few years, uh, especially with a lot of protests pretty much ramping up again, what do you say as a person who, you know, has encountered those things and has been through the marches, what do you say to this current generation of folks who are out here in marching against injustices that they see? I don't I think it's right that you have to get out there and have your voice heard. You know, and um, my day, my younger day of it, me being a kid coming up in the 60s and so forth and seeing those kind of marches, you know, head on and going through the neighborhood or in Central Park where we'd all gather, that was a take. Today, um, it's, it's, it's a little different in that we have the um, online streaming type outlets and so forth. But the fire within the people is real. It doesn't matter what the, um, the venue is that you display it. You have to have your voice heard. There is strength in numbers, and there's strength in people. You know, if you, if you take on anybody who's military or anybody who works for any kind of organization, like being the police or something like that, that is their job. They have to enforce it, but it's their job. But if it's the people, the people have a spirit in their hearts, and you can't kill that. That's why they can win, you know, and that's why they can go forward. But, they, you know, but it's in numbers, and it is in unity. And so, um, yeah, I think that um, when people go out there and, you know, we have certain tags out there like Black, Black Lives Matter and all that stuff like that, which is important, you know, when my day was coming up, it was hell no, we won't go. Well, Ungawa, Ungawa, Black Power. 
It's the same flavor. You've got to make yourself known, and you have to get it out there. And you can always do it with your friends or with a neighbor or anybody that wants to come along as a comrade in arms. And that is strength. That turns into copy and media, and it turns into reason, and it turns into it ha- that it matters across the board. So anybody that's out there trying to voice themselves through a peace march and so forth, yes. Do I think that it should be violent? No. Do I think that if violence is bestowed on them, should they do something about it? Yes. I'm a, I'm a perfect mixture in my mind of both um, Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King, where Martin Luther King professed and, and um, promoted that we should go forward and to get our civil rights and, you know, and he said, and keep a, a certain esteem about yourself. I believe that. But I also believe, and, you know, with Malcolm X, who I've gotten to see speak when I was a kid in New York, and that, you know, you have to go forward, but if somebody bestows their attack on you, then you have the right to retaliate in defense, not to initiate, but to protect. It only makes common sense, you know, and some people may want to get into the political rightness of what that is or not or any of that nonsense, but all you have to do is go look at any animal in the, in, um, instinctually in, um, in the jungles. You know, if an animal has to go uh, live, then it has to make a move. And if another animal tries to take away their property or their, their domain, they protect it. It's an instinctual thing. It's not something that we made up or that somebody is out of their mind. So, um, yes, I think we should always thrust forward and be strong and, and find our strength when there is none and find raw nerve to get us to, to propel forward. That is my strong belief. And as you can tell from me speaking here, I'm one of the last rebels, I don't know, a born rebel. I've been like this all my life, but um, I believe that. It's definitely something I hope everyone who is listening tonight takes to heart because, I mean, for, you know, I think one of the things that's more important is for those who have paved the way and those who have been through it and those who are veterans of that and, and know about it to listen to that so that, you know, we can take that and make our voices heard instead of going the wrong routes and not having it heard. So, no, thank you for sharing that tonight. Like I said, hopefully. I mean, just to add to it just a little bit, you know, I mean, you said the wrong route. You know, a wrong route means that you're trying to be destructive. That doesn't work. You know, know, to hurt doesn't work. You know, nobody's going to want to work better with you on any um, thing that you want to step up on if you're going to make them feel angered or have an attitude or feel hated. That doesn't propel you to want to, you know, feel better. You know, and, and you don't have to be a chump or a punk either about it and just be so nice that you feel like, you know, you look like you're made out of ice cream. You don't have to be that corny either. You just have to be honest. And there's a way. And that's, so that's, you know, enough said there. <laughs> Going back, you know, you, you know, you talked about uh, starting off in Claudine, but what are your early recollections in Hollywood, the earliest days of acting? Did you see what you were doing as a trailblazing role, or did was it just one of those things where, hey, I'm young, I'm out here, and I'm just going to make the most of it. How did you see it at that it's point? It's more what you're saying, Ladder. You know, no one thinks that, you know, going in. I mean, you have your aspirations and your dreams and your desires to be in the mix and you want to be there. My time of coming up with it, my um, personal time of coming up with this, I was just, you know, I would get a job, and I'd be happy that I had whatever that job would be, whether it was Claudine or doing a commercial or whatever it might be, or a play, you know, that was a job, and um, I did it for the um, entirety of that job and for the uh, integrity of it, and then it was on to the, to the next thing. So you don't know what will be. Um, I didn't have that kind of a barometer. You know, I had never been on a television show at that point when Claudine came about, so I didn't know what that was like or, you know, what that might even mean. I didn't know anything about ratings and all that stuff. I knew that you went to the movies and you liked the movie or you didn't. And um, if a movie in those days made, you know, if you made a movie for a million dollars and it made five or six million dollars at the box office, that was like, wow, you know, and, um, and, and also the movie stayed out in the theaters, you know, two, I mean, Claudine and Coley Hot was in the theaters for three years, three wow. years. That's amazing. I mean, you know, so you got, you had a, 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 you had a more naturalistic time to be able to get to that movie eventually when it finally got down to the dollar theater or something like that. So that was a different um, onset on how you went after it. But to know what it would become, I mean, how can anybody know that? You can wish, possibly, but I certainly didn't. I just was happy to have a job and happy to work and try to um, do it the best of my ability. I respect the people I was working with and felt extremely flattered and honored that they would even want me, you know, to be down. And that's 
the scope of it, you know, and then what happens overwhelms you. When I, when I did Welcome Back, Cotter, Cooley High and Claudine had been out, but Claudine was already out for a year, and Cooley High had been out over the summer. Then I was filming the first five episodes of Welcome to Cotter, so I had no idea if Cooley High was a hit or not. I was just busy doing a TV show. Then I went back to New York from L.A. to see my family, and all of a sudden people knew me, and they were coming up to me, and they were chasing me and pulling on me. That was mind-boggling and overwhelming and way out of body experience, you know, for somebody, and, um, and I didn't get it. At first, I was like, well, what's going on, man? And this and that. And, and then Welcome to Cotter, you know, also hit fast. It was just amazing. And I was all of 21. So I'm just a regular human being, man. <laughs> just like everybody else. And it, you talked about, you know, having the job. But I, one thing I read about you was that you held a lot of jobs before acting. I mean, oh, yeah. we talk about hard work. <laughs> Tell the folks out here a little bit of everything. Well, I guess in – in short, a little bit of everything that you did leading up to Oh, I did everything. I, I, was, I worked at a gas station pumping gas, and you had to do it those days. I worked as a mechanic. I worked as a messenger. I did stock work. I worked at the package designing um, firm, designing packages. I'm you know, also an artist. I worked uh, as a delivery person for grocery stores and flower places. I mean, I went down. I, went, I even worked at Macy's for two uh, weeks. I couldn't stand it. I was in the fur department, and my job was to brush the furs and bring them up from the basement. And after two weeks, I couldn't stand breathing all the fibers, so that got to me. But um, I've just had a number of gigs, you know, on the way. And um, that was just part of um, what was necessary. Um, I had to, you know, make my money so I can pay my way. And um, I, didn't, I didn't trip it. You know, I just know that was part of the necessary to get, you know, you, all, you have to come from somewhere to go someplace. And you need um, the wherewithal to get you there. And the wherewithal is usually the moolah, the money, and you have to earn it. And so, but I always took advantage of it in my head, and I would um, I can't do it anymore. But in those days, I would ride the subways, and I would make up characters, and I would play it to see how people reacted. I still look, observe people to see how they um, they move, and how they talk, and how they inflect on words, and how they can get a meaning over with just a look or a slight gesture. So you never stop being a student, that's for sure. And um, I take it in, in in that kind of stride now. Wow. Uh, I, I read that about you, and I was like, wow. Because, like, you know, you think so many people yeah, want to just jump right into it and, and get, you know, acting right off the bat. It doesn't happen that way, you know, if you're lucky. I mean, it's you like, know something, man, just to add, you know, um, David Ayello, because I just so they had the Academy Awards on in the background at home, and, and he was just coming up to the uh, red carpet and was saying, my God, you know, you played Malcolm, um, you played Martin Luther King, and, and, you know, you had a meteoric rise in your career. He says, you know, how does that feel? He said, well, it feels fine. He said, but it took 20 years to, to be the overnight success. He'd been out here already 20 years doing it. He's only a you know, 40-something-year-old man, like 41. But, you know, he got recognized as an entity in the last couple of years. We have to be coming from somewhere to go somewhere. It's like growing. You learn to crawl before you walk. That's just unnecessary. And there's also um, a lot of triumph in that because you learn to take the baby steps. You learn to appreciate the accomplishments, you learn that there is a, um, a progression and a protocol, you know, to get to a certain plateau and wherever you may be climbing to, there is, you know, you have to climb a ladder. And so that teaches you that. So when you go out and you have different jobs and so forth, you, you um, make a little money, you help to pay your way, but you also learn social skills and you learn um, people skills and how to, how to deal and how to mix it up and how to chill out or to understand where your anguish is and where it is not, or your triumphs and your happiness. It plays all those parts. You're not as verbatim as I'm saying it, but it does it. And you, um, and you step out of that. And then as an actor, that becomes your, your you know, reservoir of resources that you can call on to make yourself uh, dive into a character and find the truth. You know, some young young actors recently I was talking to, and they were asking me all about my different credits and things like that, and they were very, you know, nice and so forth. And we said, well, what is your key? Is there any key to you to um, be an actor? Is there a secret or a certain thing? I said, for me, it's real simple. You have to be honest. If you come from your honesty, then your truth will come out of that, and then the spontaneity of your inflexes and so forth, that will come out of it. And all those nuances that, you know, you can allow for once you settle into it, it'll have a chance to born itself and, be, and go forward. But you have to start with your truth. 
That's what method acting is all about. Method acting is about going into your core self, finding those sensibilities, take those to relate to a character so you can understand how to play it, and then create on top of that into whatever specifics you um, have to achieve or what you want to achieve. That's, it's pretty simple. And that's probably why it's so tough. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and you answered my question because I was going to say, you've played so many different roles, not just, you know, a drama part role, not just a comedic role. I mean, you've done different types of movies from sci-fi to horror to, you know, to you know, regular comedy. And you know, is, I'm pretty sure that that's probably the core uh, belief is that you pretty much have to be true to yourself in order to drag all of that out and be an observer of life, right? You know, whenever role you play, whether it's a, a crazy horror film or an intense drama or just an off-the-wall crazy comedy, you know, you have to put your, yourself in the mode of what that is, not in judgment, but in understanding, and let yourself be loose. You know, a few years ago, I was down in Atlanta, and I was recurring on a show called uh, Let's Stay Together. And I was playing this real old-school, life-of-the-party father and so forth, and it was just having fun. And my friend Jack A. Harry was playing my wife on the show. And we were just there, um, you know, doing our thing and running rehearsals. And then Jack A. was just watching me for a minute. She just kept looking at me, and I was wondering what it was. And she said, she says, I don't know about you doing that. You know I mean? That's not, that's not Larry how I because I've known her all our life. She's loved me all my life. She said, that's not who you are. I said, yes, it is. I said, but I feel like being silly. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> You know, I feel like I'm having fun just being nuts. You know, I'm not trying to be some handsome leading man or some debonair. I don't care, I could care less. You know, I said I was having a good time being silly and to be able to play this guy with these, you know, big wide rim hats and these maxi coats and and being and doing soul train pop locking and all that. I was having a ball. You know, and, and uh, you know, just being silly. I mean, one one of my grandkids saw it, and she was cracking up. She just said, "Papa, you're nuts." I said, "Thank you." <laughs> so. There it is, man. It worked. So the so have they expressed an interest in <laughs> or is that something that you'd like to see them do? Excuse me, I I, I miss you. Would you say? Your, your grandchild, is that something that you'd like to see them do is go into acting or You know something, something um I wouldn't encourage it on them as kids because I think it should be a child and enjoy the experiences of growing up. When they got to when they get to a certain age and um, let's say teenage age, the later teenage years, if they started sweating me on it, well, then they got me. And I would be their 1,000% friend, mentor, advisor, you know, whatever they would need. I just think, you know, that um, <clears throat> show business is not the end all. And there is life. Life is more important. You know, when anybody is time, when their time comes and they have to check out out of here, most people wish that they had um, – a little more peace and a little more kindness and a little more love. And so that's what's most important as a profession and a job. I don't, I don't think anything's wrong with uh, entertainment and show, but I love it insatiably, you know, and that's never going to end. But it's a tough game and it's an involving game. And so I think you need a little bit of life living to take it on. It, it only helps. When you're a kid, you can't know. There's just no way. So that's my thing. Now, you know, we've talked about the movies, we've talked about television, but one of the things that I know is near and dear to your heart is actually on the stage, and I know that's where you have had your beginnings in doing plays. For sure, um, and, and which is most, most actors I've known. Really. Coming out of New York, you know, um, I can go down the line with any of them because we're all there together, but I don't care from, from Denzel to Stan, Sam Jackson to whoever, we all came out of stage, Richard Roundtree, all of us. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, that's just the roots. You know, when you do stage, you have a chance to really um, constantly be developing a personality and a persona, and it's different every night, although there's a similar through line. It's different because of the reactive moments of the audience, how you felt that day when you were coming in, you know, the achievements of uh, being able to pull it off every night, you know, how you may be feeling in terms of your energy up and down, if you have a headache or if you got sick today, but you still got to be there, which has happened to me a few times. Even when we did Cooley High, one day we were at lunch, and I was, you know, being real greedy, eating all these meatballs and sausages they had, and I got food poisoning. You know, I mean, I got violently food poisoning, and I went to the, um, I, to the dressing room, the trailer, and I was throwing up, and I was shaking, and I was sweating and all this stuff, and I was able to get myself calm enough 
And there's a scene in Cooley High where you see us uh, getting ready to go to the movies, and myself and Glenn are talking about the secrets of what we're going to do and telling Pooter to get out of here. I was completely sick. <laughs> Nobody wow. knew it to look at me, but I was messed up. I was there, you know, in between the takes, and I was like, bleh, I was going nuts. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's it's a it's a journey. So, will you be doing any more in the future, or appearing in different cities? In any theater? Yes, in any theater. But, oh, sure. I mean, you know, theater, it, uh, something nice. I mean, what I would like to do, and I've never done. I've been on Broadway once in a musical. I would love to go to Broadway in a dramatic play. I mean, I want to get that out of my system. You know, I want to go with a nice dramatic play, hopefully in no more than a four or five character play, and it, and it would be a drama. And, of course, I just said that. And um, that would be fantastic to do, and I would love to have a, a bunch of wonderful actors in there. I always seem to think of Glenn Turman and everything with me, so it would be great of Glenn to be part of that experience and other people. And we would just, you know, do it. You know, that would be terrific and so forth. I like theater, you know, and it's very good. Um, I seem to get bored with it after a while, though. You know, after I've done it for maybe a couple of months, I want to get out of there. <laughs> Eight shows a week will get to you, you know. And so, you know, that's uh, 1632. That's 64 performances of the same part. I'm going nuts. You know, maybe take that twice. You know, that's 128 times I've done it. I'm like, okay, man, let me out of this straitjacket. You know, and so you find a rhythm off and on with that all the time. But, you know, that's, that's, the, way, that's the nature of the beast. So what are you going to do? And you mentioned earlier you were, well, you kind of have it on TV, and I'm pretty sure some folks will be watching it here tonight, the Academy Awards. And, oh, absolutely, yeah. And one of the things, of course, a couple of years ago with the uh, controversy over the Oscars so white, do you think that Hollywood has made strides towards uh, including a lot of, and, and not just, and we're not just probably talking like <clears throat> African-American performances, but a lot of minority performers over the last couple of years, or, or over the span of the time in which you started acting, have you seen great strides? In you that? know, no, I don't think it's really much different. You know, it would seem so because this particular year they have a lot of um, uh, people of color nominated, especially black people. There's, I don't know how many black people are nominated this year or have for nominations, but it equates to something like 20-something nominations, which is miraculous and unprecedented. And that's fantastic and so forth. And I don't know if... Um, if that's a coincidence or if that's part of the Hollywood stride. I think it's just the way things work out. But I think what makes Hollywood work or makes any business work is what works as a profit, as a box office, you know, and so forth. And, you know, all these films are doing well. Hidden Figures has made over $145 million. Can't ignore that. You know, um, Moonlight was made for a $5 million budget, and it's made over $30 million bucks. That's not to be ignored. You know, um, Denzel's movie, you know, it was a $24 million budgeted movie that's over the $50 million mark. So money talks and bullshit takes a stroll. You know, excuse the language, but that's just real. <laughs> you know, and so um, that is um, the barometer by which Hollywood would um, springboard itself. And it also proves that across the line with all the myths that have been set for many, many years that, you know, well, we can't pre-sell movies if it has black stars in them and all that. Well, that's nonsense because then Will Smith would not be the big star that he is or Denzel or Sam Jackson. And they're, you know, so that's nonsense. And these other movies that are being made now are transcending over in, in the European countries and the countries that are outside of the North American territories to box office gold. So, you know, yeah, we're in there. Um, the diversity of things that can come along would be just interesting to see, you know, um, what would happen. Uh, it would be an interesting thing to know what's going to happen this, in this next year coming in terms of the types of films that we made. As far as a clear line on it, um, no, that's not to be seen. I don't see it. You know, I just see um, the, uh, the, the ideas of it. You see more people, black people on television, starring in shows or being on television shows. Uh, you see them um, doing more interracial couples and things like that in television commercials, and nobody's making no comment on it. They're just showing it. It's a real yeah. reflection of what the world is. The world is multicultural. It always has been, but it's even so more, you know, even more so in this last, you know, 40 years, 30 years. So that's being reflected. A lot of those influences come from many things. It comes from music videos. It comes from um, you see little kids who are. 12 and 13 years old going to high school and the little girl is as white as she could be and her boyfriend is black as he can be, but they sure love each other and they're real with that. And there's no big thing to them. That's the truth. So with those things being said and my secret 
the end of a dream for it is I really want it to be that. And certainly, um, in, you know, just in, in, implore that all I can to say, yes, it's, it's stepped up a little bit, but it has to step up more in the powers that be positions because that's how these things will go forward. So it has to be more in the executive positions of who finances, who is the, um, has the green light um, power to make something happen at a studio or production company. You know, the subject matters have to get more diverse. And um, all kinds of people, men and women, black, white, Latino, Asian, made it Native American, need to come into the fold and just do mainstream stuff, which they call it mainstream, but we're all part of the mainstream. We're just, you know, we're just people in the world, and in our case, Americans. So, yeah, my folks are high. Well, that's good. I was going to say, and I know from the movie side, do you think it's done that on the television side as well, or is it still the same thing needed on, on that side too? It's the same. You know, in television, you see it maybe seemingly a little bit more because television is a little more immediate, mm-hmm. you know, than um, a movie. A movie takes more time to do and takes a longer time to come out. A television show, um, <clears throat> you know, can be on like right now or be on within a matter of weeks when you have the showcase. And so, yes, that is there. I mean, of course, there is scandals, and there's How to Get Away with Murder, Luke Cage, and and Seven Seconds, and all these shows, you know, or you know, Masters of None, which is you know, with a, an Arabic person or Indian um, heritage person. There's a lot of these kind of shows where you see these pe- people like this all over the place, and that's good, and that's so forth. And we just need more, and we need more diversity in it, and we need to um, show you know the young and the old and the um, the black and the um, Latinos and so forth, all just being with each other and being about each other and going trusting forward. You know, you know, that, that, always... That's you know we need we need more of it. We need more diversity in it. I know it's a commercial business. I know the business is there to sell you know salt, soap, powder, and toothpaste. I'm not a fool on that, so I understand it. But everybody uses um, dishwashing liquid. Everybody uses toothpaste. Everybody <laughs> needs to, you know, buy a car, you know, or, or go off and get themselves a hamburger at McDonald's. So that could be everybody. Yeah. I'm always interested well, to find out what people in the business actually do like to watch. What are some of your favorites right now that, you know, might be an addiction for you? And when you sit down in front of the TV, what do you usually like watching? You know, I'm I'm probably nuts on what I watch. I like um, the nature channels. I like the science channel. <laughs> I seem to be hooked on that. Uh, I'm a news junkie, so myself and uh, MSNBC here should be cousins. You know, I just love watching um, what's going on in the world. You know, I, on the Sundays, I try to catch the uh, Fox um, news program that comes with the local one that comes on at 8 o'clock usually because a lot of times they're very biased or – you know, when they get into their debate panel, I, I just like to hear the differences to know what the other side or another side is is thinking. But, um, you know, um, a lot of the newer sh- programs, I'm really not aware of, of them in terms of watching them. I catch them when I can. I mean, I've seen Game of Thrones, you know, I've seen Scandals and pieces like that. But a lot of them, I um, I, I don't have a favorite show. It's not the same, that, that kind of the end for me, although I do enjoy it. Um, I wouldn't mind doing a dramatic television series with some, some real meat to it. It would be fun and interesting to pull that off, and it could be about anything. You know, if it's about a family, it would really be deep because you can really get into a lot. Like, look, when I see the show Blue Bloods, the uh, Tom Selleck show, I like that because it's about a family of law enforcers trying to do their jobs from being lawyers to cops to being, you know, the head of the department and still trying to keep the family unit together every week. That's a nice examination of what they have to go through and then how they have to come together at the Sunday family dinner and get along. they got young kids. You know, those kind of explorations are just interesting to me, and um, I want to see that with black people. I want to see that diversity and that depth and that kind of, um, that kind of you know, disarray and pluses. It'll just be fun. So we'll see. It's not a good show for you to direct <laughs> or star. <in. laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> If Hollywood's listening, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. you know, I do have to ask this question, though. I, I, I've bounced on this all week long. If an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter does come on TV, do you watch it, or do you just say, ah, I already lived it, no need to even watch it? Or you know, it's it. funny. Anything that I've done, um, I don't particularly watch it, no. Uh, I've seen it, you know, of course, a number of times. You know, I remember one year, every year at my house, I give a big Thanksgiving party, and so it's a zillion people there. And one year we were just, you know, having the regulars over. 
and the Jacksons came on. And so they were watching football, and then all of a sudden they turned it on to the Jacksons, and everybody wanted to watch the Jacksons. And I didn't watch it <laughs> at all. You know, I was like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, you know, what am I going to do? You, know, you feel a weird, you know. I mean, I'm not going to sit around and every time Cooley High is on, I have to watch Cooley High. And, you know, um, no, it's, it's not like that. But when Welcome Back is – I mean, Welcome Back Cotter has been on the Me Channel for the last couple of years. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it on there once since it's been repeated. I cash a residual check, I'll tell you that part, but <laughs> I haven't done the other part. You know, and, um, you know, I'm not against it. You know, it's just that if I catch it, I'll catch it. And I, what happens a lot when you when I see the old movies or the, the, the things that I've done, um, I go back to the sentimental moments. I think about something that happened that day or, you know, even like it with Welcome at Cotter. It, it's a little bit uh, sentimental for me because um, four of the cast members are no longer with us. Yeah. And that's Robert Hedges and Ron Palillo and Marsha Strassman and John Sylvester White. You know, they're they're gone on to the you know, to the higher ground. And so it's just John, Gabe and myself. So it's um you know, it's it's a little a little melancholy sometimes to watch it. And then I that I'll think about some how silly we were. We were always cracking each other up, we were always playing practical jokes. We were just like, you know, the inmates running the asylum type thing. So, you know, you think of the good times and a lot of fun, you know. Oh, when I see Gabe or John now, there's that that brotherly connection, it just won't go away, you know, and it should not go away. And so that's, you know, that's our care for each other. So we got, we got lucky. We got lucky. Who was the best practical joker on that set? Oh, let me tell you, the funniest person and the silliest, most ridiculous person on there was John Travolta. He was out of his <laughs> mind every day, you know, and he was silly and he was, and he was over the top and, you wouldn't know it had to look at him how you you know you see him as you know well, he's going for an Oscar, but he was the silliest, nuttiest, off the wall fool in the world. Man, he kept me laughing all the time. Wow. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah that's, that's something now have to come out. But uh, you know, one of the uh, other things that there's so many Hollywood remakes, and I saw the other day where they were remaking Chips. If they came to you and somebody came up to you and said, hey, we're going to make a remake of one of the four things that you've, one of the few things that you've done, what would you like to see a remake of? What would you not like to see a remake of? I don't think any of them should be. I know they're, they're, they want to make a remake of Cooley High, and it's in the works at MGM. That's for real. You know, and uh, Common and John Legend and Tony Krantz are involved as producers. Tony Krantz's father, Steve Krantz, produced the original Cooley High. And Tony had um, written me an email recently, let me, I already knew about it, but he was letting me know they were doing it. And he was saying, oh, you know, this year, when we do this thing about a year or so from now, Larry, you know, you know, there's probably going to be a part in there for you. Well, I'll have to see how that works out. What is my feeling about it? Um, not really any. That's their thing. How they're going to pull it off is beyond me. I don't know what they have in store or what their take would be on it. I just know that audiences um, or people's sensibilities are different. Cooley High was done in 1974, and now we're in 2017. That's a long stretch later. And they want to make yeah. it contemporary. The world is um, not that kind of world where it was just, you know, love that brother and let's go out and chase the girls. You know, it's a little bit different now. You know, we're in the, in the uh, Internet era and, you know, texting and all that. It's a whole different thing. So I have no idea how to approach it, but I do believe this, and I'm not just using my movies. I just think certain movies you just, or certain um, projects you just don't mess with. You don't try to remake The Godfather, or you don't try to remake Gone with the Wind. It's just not going to work. You know, um, and those things were made for different reasons. And when they were made at those times, people had a feeling, they went for it, and, um, the outcome is what it was, and the audiences got that. When you try to go back and do that again, now you're trying to catch, you know, lightning in a bottle, or you're trying to emulate what's already been done. So to um, add originality to that and spontaneity to that is a real tough um, hump to get over because the comparisons are going to be automatic. You know, people are just going to be all over you with that. You know, well, you know, who's coaches, who's who's preach, you know? I mean, wait a minute, you know, what about when they went to the to the zoo with the animals? You know, that's, you couldn't do that today. You know, it just wouldn't work, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I don't know. I have a bittersweet feeling, I guess, in my subconscious about the Cooley High remake. Cause I have, and they also want to do a Welcome Back Hotter remake. They tried that for a few years, you know, and um, they had it going on, and then it didn't happen. 
But um, Ice Cube was going to play Mr. Cotter. <laughs> Ice Cube was going to play Mr. Cotter, and they were they were bringing it to East L.A. or Compton, and um, that was going to be the take on it. And I remember I was in Hollywood one time at a restaurant. I just stopped at some place to eat, and these guys who happened to be sitting next to me, they were, just kept staring at me. And then they finally admitted that they were involved in that movie. And, and this one guy, um, you know, was uh, rewriting it and so forth and, and so forth. And they wanted to talk to me about it, but they also were nervous. So I just, I found it funny. You know, I said, I said to them, I said, hey, make your movie. You know, if that's going to happen, you have to make your vision, not mine. You don't have to please me. You know, you have to please you. And then, you know, an audience hopefully will respond to what you bring out. That's how you approach anything as a filmmaker, as a writer, as an actor, as a politician. You have to start with yourself, and you have to get an understanding of what you're talking about, you believe, or what you're trying to, you know, get out there and, and expand upon, you know, and, and execute to the world. You have to believe it. And so you put that out there, and then you go forward from there. So that's the take. I know that's another question I want to ask because I know here in Chicago, locally, they were doing a um, Claudine the musical where it kind of like sped ahead a few years from where the movie left off. And I said, I don't know if you could really, you know, <laughs> I, I guess you could. You, you but, know something, uh, you know, um, about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, some um, um, a theater company in Philadelphia did a Cooley High musical, and they um, flew myself and Glenn down to see it. And it was quite excellent. You know, it was quite excellent. You know, I mean, they really were sincere to the movie. They made it a lot of fun. It was a little strange to see guys playing us because I'm sitting right next to Glenn. And the guy who played Glenn sort of looked like Glenn in the movie. And the guy who played me looked sort of like me until we got next to them. And they were way shorter than both of us. So that was funny. But, uh, you know, but on stage, it didn't look like that. And, um, you know, it was just, um, why not? You know, if you can make it work, you know, then you you have to have something to say. But to try to continue the story, that's not what I think somebody would be interested in. You know, unless you're doing a continuing story in its time, like The Godfather or the Lethal Weapon movies or something like that, you know, continued on, or the, you know, the Back to the Futures and all those things. Kind of, they, they kind of did it within its time frame. You know, to do it now, you're asking somebody to remember a lot that they may not even be aware of or they just forgot. It's a lot. It's like when they made The Godfather Part 3, it was 16 years after they had done The Godfather Part 2, which happened two years after the original Godfather, so it was still fresh. And it was up on point, but 16 years later, that's a whole lot of living. That's a whole lot of differences in one's life or where they've gone. You know, in that case, all the actors, when they did The Godfather 1, they were happy to have a job and was broke. But by the time they did Godfather Part 3, they were all millionaires. They didn't, they didn't need the money. <laughs> so it's a whole different take. Hmm? You know, I always hear the Hollywood stories of where people had roles that they turned down or were into running for that later became well known. Do you happen do you happen to have any stories like that where somebody came to you and said, Hey, we want you to do this and at the time you either said no or you were in the running for and it gone on to become something else that we might know. I, I have no regrets about anything that didn't work out um, that, you know, somebody thought of me and wanted to make an offer. No regrets. Um, you know, there might be been one or two roles I really wanted. I mean, I wanted to play the role in the movie on um, Ragtime that my friend Howard Rollins wanted to play. I just thought it was a classed out role. So I really wanted to do that role. And um, it was just not in the cards for me to play it. So that was that. <clears throat> but, um, I've been asked to do many things over the years, and I've said no to some of them. And there's no regrets and uh, anything like that. Um, some things you just move on for. Or even like when I went up for the Jacksons movie, every actor that I could, an actress that I could think of that was available was up for that role, and everybody was good. So it was a matter of a hard choice because everybody was bringing it. <laughs> Nobody was playing, you know, and um, it was a you know, very coveted role. So, for me, I don't stand in judgment on those things, and I don't try to play critic or snob up and think, well, you know, I think and all that nonsense. No, you know, um, you move on, and if you, um, whatever jobs you even take, if you've done a couple of Dutch films, and I have a few of those too, live with it, you know, because you had your reasons for doing them at the time. Whatever they might have been, stay honest again to yourself and stay honest to your, your springboard. That is the key to life in anything we do. You know, nobody can live yesterday over because it's already happened. 
where people are getting into those hypotheticals, like, if you knew what you knew now 20 years ago, would you have done it different? I'm like, wait, nonsense is that. I, I wouldn't have known what I know now 20 years ago. So what am I tripping that for? You know, that, that's trying to, you know, control, you know, God or something. And I, I don't play that game with myself, not at all. I said, I'd rather live in the times that I'm at, thinking about the future, you know, learning from the past, and keep on stepping up. I said, that is the way to thrust forward to me in anything. So when it comes to different roles or stuff like that, no, I don't, I don't feel shortchanged or like, you know, man, I should have played that wrong. Denzel had a way to give it to Sam. No, I don't have any of that. You know, it just works out differently sometimes. I look at it when there's some other actor friend of mine and we might be up for the same role or being considered, and they get it. I said, well, it's just their turn this week. That's all. <laughs> next week is my turn. So what's my attitude. Uh, what latest projects can we uh, find you in upcoming? Say again? You said what? Uh, so what is next for you? What upcoming projects can we find you in? I did a few little independent films. I did an independent film in Chicago about two months ago, three months ago, called A Chance in the World. And it's based on a um, true story about a uh, a young brother who was raised in the foster care system quite abusively. And what he went through as a young man, I played the the abusive daddy, you know, and this wonderful kid, Terrell Ransom Jr., plays um, a young kid. So I did that. I did um, a movie called 31 with uh, Rob Zombie, a crazy horror film that just recently came out on DVD. So I had that going on. And I have another one called uh, Dead Man Walking, or is it Dead Man Rising? It's called, called it Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Rising. It's an independent film. I don't know the whereabouts of when that's going to happen, but I know that it's been playing a lot of the festival circuits and just getting every award in sight. And so, and I also did one called, um, which is another independent small film called In the Sins of a Father. I'm a cameo player in it, but I'm playing a father who lives in the hood, and a bunch of these cops are coming in there you know, being undercover, but I know that, you know, they're up to no good. And the reason I'm feeling bad about it is because my son was taken out by one of these people, so I don't want them there. So I give them a hard time, and they give me a hard time back. So those are the things that are um, in the rise. On the director side, there's some things on the plate that I'm going to direct, and we're putting those things together now. One is called Caseload, written by myself and the playwright, Levy Lee Simon. You know, and that's about um, a bunch of drug um, recovery people trying to come back to society and how do I fit back into my life and after tragic um, downfalls. That one and um, another one that we hope will work out is a comedy called Back Together Again and I'm working on that right now so those will be um, films that I would direct. You know, probably back to back so no sleep but you know, this is real life. Nope. Never no sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes guess, you got to uh, push it. I yeah, I guess the final question here, you kind of a Alluded to some of it earlier, but what advice would you give towards young actors, whether you know African American actors or any actor that's looking to you know start their way out in Hollywood? What, if they came to you and said, "Hey, you know, in one brief moment, what advice could you give me?" What would you say? I would say very simply. I say, commit to it like a gospel. Commit to it like something that's as necessary as water running out of a faucet. It should be that natural, but that real. You know, it, there is no shortcut. You know, and um, it's it's um, it's a hard road of hard work. You can do it, but you have to believe it. You know, there was an old saying from a book from this Napoleon Rich. It's got wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. I mean, Napoleon Hill was his name I meant. And um, <clears throat> he had a thing that he says, you know, anything that you can believe, you can achieve. You know, or anything you, you know, you believe you can achieve, you know, or no, he said, anything you can believe and conceive, then you can achieve. That's the way the saying went. It's a simple thing. You have to have a beginning, middle, and end to anything, but you have to springboard from something. So you springboard from your honesty. You springboard from your truth. You springboard from that a lot of days you're going to be clueless, but you can get some clues. You don't have to know it all today, but, you know, put your mind towards it. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the journey. You know, when you have anguish and you have a disillusionment, get over it quick. You want to be depressed? Be depressed for about 10 minutes and then step up and get, you know, so it's like being a boxer, man. You get knocked down, okay, that's that round. Get up, shake it off, get your head right, focus, and keep on coming out to the next round. It's that simple, man. I think that's the best advice to close this show out on, and I can't thank you enough for taking your time out today to join us on the 411 Lounge. I know, uh, as I said, uh, you know, Pleasure Life Music and TV and radio and your friend Spontaneous, even though she told me that you're probably going to say it's 
not spontaneous that you you know her by another name. <laughs> that oh, um, I just know I just know it's Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> she said you were gonna say that, so. <laughs> oh yeah, she's my buddy. I've known her all my life, <laughs> so you know. <laughs> but I can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, much success and definitely. You know, when the projects are out, I'm pretty sure I will be calling you again to come on and talk about those, and I hope that you will come back and, you know, delight us with your your wisdom. And, uh, you know, like I said, thank you so much for coming on this evening. Absolutely. Thank you, my brother, man. You keep it tight. You enjoy the day. Okay. We'll we'll do. Thank you. And, of course, to all of you, thank you enough for listening to the 411 Lounge, and also a special thanks to DJ Wahid, who – uh, put together the great music package that you heard and that we'll kind of play out on. I think uh, we'll play it out for a little bit. And uh, until then and until next we meet, this is LeVar saying thank you so much for listening to the 411 Lounge. We'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.